0: Welcome to the Diet Doctor podcast with Dr. Brett Schur. Today I'm joined by Dr. Gary Fetke, an orthopedic surgeon in Tasmania, Australia. But also, more importantly, a man who has suffered for years under investigation and accusation for teaching people about nutrition, teaching his patients about nutrition. He was basically persecuted because he was trying to help people by advising them how to eat and he was effectively silenced for years but now has been exonerated and has, uh, it has fueled him just to teach people more about not only his, his struggles and what, what, what he went through but it's helped him uncover a lot of the uh, influences behind what we're told or how we're told to eat and the influences run deep with industry and religion and it's really surprising. Sometimes it, it reads like a, a uh, suspense novel or a, a fiction movie to, to really keep you on the edge of your seat and, um, with conspiracy theories, but as he and his wife Belinda have, have shown and talked about many times, it's there, it's in, in writing, it's in documents that they've uncovered and it's, it's a little scary but at the same time the message is that we have to open our eyes, we have to be aware of outside influence and we have to question uh, the status quo and that's how we move forward and that's how we learn. Um, As part of his work, he's written a book, uh, Inversion, One Man's Answer for World Peace and Global Health. So as you can see by that title, quite ambitious, um, but he's well on his way to helping us understand this and giving us the path of how we need to see things a little bit differently um, and understand the influence put upon us. So hopefully this will be a very eye-opening and enjoyable interview with Dr. Gary Fecky. Dr. Gary Fetke, thank you so much for joining me today on the Diet Doctor podcast. A lot, Well, it's it's been a pleasure to meet you. I can't believe, with all the the circles we run in that that it's just the first time I've gotten to meet you, and it it is like meeting a celebrity. Which I'm sure, if you would have looked back, you know, three four years ago, to think you'd be in this position would probably be pretty crazy, wouldn't it?
1: I'm I'm just a normal guy. I didn't ever mean to become a celebrity. And I, I actually I I, that doesn't sit well on my shoulders. Um, even though when I come along to these meetings, people want to, you know, catch up and chat. Uh yeah. you know, what I've just been doing is what I, I had to do, just do the right thing and and I'm you know, I'm fairly stubborn, which has uh, been proven over time.
0: Right. Which is so amazing. You you wonder like what what why was it you that this happened to? Why was it you who saw that as an orthopedic surgeon, you weren't helping patients in the way that you could? Why was it you who started talking about nutrition with your patients and then got basically silenced and, and muted by, by the societies? But because it was you, because you're stubborn enough, because you're a fighter, because you believe so passionately, you were the one who was able to push through and, and come out the other side showing that you were right. So what is it about you that made you survive this process?
1: I think the first thing is that I, I, I recognised the issues of sugar and carbohydrate loading, particularly in diabetics, relatively early. So yeah. if you if you came out now as a doctor and said, "I want to," you know, I'm criticising the amount of sugar in the patients' load in the hospitals, you wouldn't be in nearly as much trouble. Right. So first of all, I, I recognised it early, and then I started talking about it. Then I got involved in social media, and that's when I got into trouble because I was starting to become a voice. To, and the other thing is that my message was. Let's reduce sugar for patients, particularly in diabetics. Let's, you know, I question hospital food. But the most important thing was that I wasn't selling anything. Right. I didn't have a book. I didn't have uh, a business that was dependent on it. We did start, you know, a dietetic service down the track, but that was because no one else was giving that, you know, that support to people that, that, that was required. So because I didn't have anything and I was actually at the coalface and literally. Looking at the end complications of diabetes and obesity and lifestyle disease whether or not it's arthritis or as it was evolving in my practice a significant amount of diabetic foot surgery mm-hmm. so it's pretty hard to argue against me if I'm actually the surgeon doing the amputations you know and I'm actually seeing the end product right. and making a noise about it so that as it turns out the cereal industry the dietitians Association of Australia I think found me as a threat because A, I actually had an answer for the problem but B, it was actually counteracting, completely the opposite of what they were promoting.
0: Yeah, so let's talk about that for a second. As an orthopedic surgeon, one of your big money makers, one of the big things that you do on a regular basis is joint replacements in people who are overweight and obese and that's what has contributed to a lot of their joint disease. You amputate toes and feet for people who have diabetes and non-healing ulcers. That's what a big part of what orthopedic surgeons do. So why were you the one to say, well, wait a second, there's a better way to do this to prevent all this, to prevent people from getting here? What did you see differently?
1: Well, like a lot, like a lot of doctors who have embarked on the low-carb pathway, you do it for yourself first of all. Yeah. So I'm 20-odd kilos lighter now than I used to be. I was pre-diabetic, I had a run-in with you know, a malignant uh, uh, pituitary tumor 20-odd years ago. Uh, I had psoriasis. I had sort of inflammatory joint disease. So, you know, I, I ran my own pathway to my own health. Right. And so, adopting low carb, as it turns out, LCHF now, but it started with the whole sugar issue, first of all. So, I had the benefits for myself. And then I started saying, well, hang on, what if it works for me, it's going to start working for my patients. In between times, I experimented on the family and on my theatre team. So, you know, I didn't go straight to my patients. Right. And then we had the. Um, and it just became an, it was so obvious that this is what we had to do. Again, I, I started speaking out about it. Um, you know, I, I come from a background of actually being proactive on patients taking care of themselves first of all. So if you go back twenty five years, I wouldn't operate on smokers. Yeah, I said, look, you know, and I used to give a paper where it called where there's smoke, there's fire, Less fire. And so there, if you looked at the early science of that, it was smoking has you know. Uh, the deleterious effects on you know our cardiovascular tree, our our healing potential, and you know that's it's now completely mainstream that we should be avoiding major surgery on people who are smoking. Mm. So the next thing from that was that I started avoiding doing surgery. In fact, refusing to do major joint replacements on patients that were too fat. You know that's a politically incorrect term to to use now, but you know, that was the scenario. So I drew a line in the land, I drew a line in the sand at patients with a BMI of more than thirty-five, and it, it and then the literature is there, well and truly, that supports that stand
0: because of higher complication rates
1: and. well, they, 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 well first of all, if they actually reduce their weight, they don't need the surgery. Right. If they do come to surgery, they have higher complications rates. There's higher rates, and that's not just anaesthetic. That's theatre time. That's wound issues. Mm-hmm. that's malalignment issues with joint replacements. Uh, and uh, longevity so they, they don't tend to to last as long.
0: But were your colleagues down the street just perfectly happy to operate on those people that you turned away?
1: Well, I won't use the word perfect but they were happily happily yeah. <laughs> continuing on that pathway. And so I've had patients that wouldn't adopt what I was recommending and go to my colleagues down the road and I'm okay with that. Yeah. But if if you don't offer them the option and the choice to avoid that surgery, and the same thing with bariatric surgery nowadays. You know, we have good options. And when I hear bariatric surgeons saying, oh, they tried dieting, I said, have they actually tried LCHF? And they go, I oh, know that doesn't work. And I said, well, actually, it does.
0: Yeah. And but... when people say they've tried everything, they've tried yeah. everything and failed. And I'm sure that's what they say to you when they come, I've tried dieting and it doesn't work. And mm. you say, well, let's explore this a little bit more. So what have you seen? I mean, I mean I'm sure you've seen some impressive changes in people who've adopted LCHF.
1: One of the fascinating things in orthopedics is that people actually a lot, not everyone, they lose their arthritis pain before they lose weight.
0: Oh, isn't that interesting. I've, I've,
1: I've had patients, you know, have dramatic improvements in their joint arthritic pain within ten to fourteen days. Really? Uh, I can remember a fellow. He said, I've, I've come to you because I know I'm overweight, and I've got arthritis, and I need a joint replacement." I said, "Well," okay. and he said, "I've come to you because I know you're not going to operate on me straight away." And you're going to tell me to to diet? I just need help. So I look, up, he went along, he, uh, went and saw a dietitian that was completely on board with it, and then rang up ten days later and said, "Look, I've lost all my arthritis pain." He lost it all
0: in ten days. In ten
1: days. Wow, that's remarkable. And so if you actually throw that concept out there, then there there's a thousand n equals one stories. Right. Of people losing their pain, or disproportionately losing their pain before weight loss, the weight loss comes along, and that's got its added benefits, both short and long term. But I'm still doing joint replacement on patients that have done LCHF. Yeah, you know, but they're coming back to me a year down the track or two years down the track. They hobble in, and they get better quicker. Yeah, you know, they've gone into training. I often say, look, you're in training for a joint replacement. Do this, try that get your fitness up, do a bit of exercise.
0: Right, and I think that's a good point because sometimes we have to be careful about overstating the benefits we can get. It's not like it's a cure-all and is going to reverse all arthritis, mm-hmm. but it can certainly delay it, it can certainly improve recovery, it can certainly improve function leading into and after a joint replacement. I mean, those seem like fairly reasonable conclusions that you can draw, but when the the literature doesn't exist, right, the, the 10,000 person study about... Half getting LCHF, half getting joint replacements. When that doesn't exist yet, but the clinical N of ones exist, you find it hard to convince other surgeons about what you're seeing. And the you know, like once you see it, you can't unsee it. So why doesn't everybody see it, right?
1: Well, that's part of one of my talks coming up is yeah. why, as a medical community, we're not seeing it, mm-hmm. and that's that's complex in itself. So what you can do is actually let the patients set the example. They go back to the general practitioners. Uh, you know in the orthopedic meetings, you keep standing up and saying the same thing and now i 'm asked to speak about the topic you know, so you know at an orthopedic meeting and so and surgical meetings coming up i, I get a voice now so there 's an interest there in surgeons and I we had a chat you know beforehand about uh, a couple, some years ago I gave a talk on don 't operate on obese patients and uh, I nearly got you know, and I gave Two hundred papers, you know, a summary of those, and against, you know, against my argument was there were three papers. And so I actually think that if we're actually operating on obese patients, unnecessarily by doing joint replacement, bearing in mind in Australia, ninety percent of knee replacements are done on patients who are overweight and obese. And set... 90%, so if these st- people I... stop
0: doing that, there goes their income, there goes their livelihood, there goes a big percentage of their practice. Well, I, I,
1: look, I, I Look, I did exaggerate that, okay. okay. The, the last year's figures it was 89.9%, right? so, but let's say 90%. <laughs> and 74% of total HIPS are, are done on patients who are overweight and obese yeah. and in increasingly on young women. Hmm. So you know, that's the demographics, that's from our joint registry and we've got a problem. I mean that's going to. It's not an issue for my career, but the next generation of orthopedic surgeons are going to be operating on these people when their joints fail. Yeah. And they they're going to fail at a higher rate. We've already got that data, so they're going to fail at a higher rate on younger people, and they're going to be. It's just a. It's it's just another layer of the tsunami of lifestyle-related disease that's going to be upon the next generation of of yeah. the medical profession.
0: Hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to think about how the demographics are changing unless we can impact it and reverse it, which is a big part of your message,
1: isn't it? And I'm just saying, you know, if your tire is worn out on on your car, you're still going to need to have it replaced. But if you drive it around carefully and you take a few rocks out of it, it'll last longer. Yeah. And then when you actually have your surgery, it's going to be... Easier on the patient, easier on the surgeon, easier easier on the system. They're going to be in the hospital less time.
0: Right. And that, that's an interesting point. So a lot of people may not think about that. There's the question of do you need the surgery or do you not? But also how much time is it going to take? How much is the rehab going to take? What kind of impact is that going to have on your life? Those are important questions as well that a lot of people probably don't think as, um, as much
1: about. Uh, little simple things, I'll go back to smoking. But patients who are smokers spend longer time in the recovery ward. Mm-hmm. The same thing actually goes with obese patients. Yeah, They have longer times to, for the anesthetic, uh, longer recovery times, much heavier nursing problems in the hospitals, staffing problems, you've got to have extra staff on board to, to move them around, right. then you've got higher workers' compensation rates because of people getting back injuries.
0: That's a snowball effect, isn't it?
1: There's another interesting thing which is is coming around It is in pain management. and not just in acute pain, but in chronic pain mm-hmm. management, there's uh, that whole role of the ketogenic diet in, in that. So it's, again, anecdotal. Right. But I've got patients who are actually running low-carbon keto, and they seem to have less post-operative pain in their surgery.
0: Why do you think that is? You think it's something about the ketones, something about the sugar and the carbs, or a combination of both?
1: I think both. I think yeah. that sugar, I mean, I use the example of, you know, give kids sugar at a party. And, they go hyper and then a few hours later they're flat and depressed. <laughs> on oh, a side note, You know what, what would happen to society if we gave everyone on the planet sugar at the one time? We'd have anxiety, depression, anger, mm-hmm. mental health issues and whatever. Guess what? We've got all of those.
0: All of those, yeah. Uh,
1: but <clears throat> if we look at it also from the keto, the ketogenic aspect of um, in neurodegenerative disorders that um, nerves can run just as happily on a glucose load as they can on a ketone load. So again, it seems to have a beneficial effect in the neurodegenerative disorders. And there are a few papers out there now in pain management talking about ketogenic diets. So again, I just use those to my patients. I say, I can't force this upon you but here's a non-drug alternative. Right, right yeah. and, it's, and these are all about giving your patients tools to manage their own condition.
0: Right. So you mentioned a non-drug alternative and that brings up another whole big topic that you've been very vocal about. So when you're promoting a non-drug alternative in a culture that's sort of fueled by drug companies and drug money, you are going against some very big forces that probably don't want you to succeed. And you have turned not only as a physician, but you've turned into an investigative reporter, you along with your wife Belinda, Mm to uncover a lot of sort of the beginnings of an anti-meat campaign, of people with vested interest in not promoting LCHF. And it's sort of fascinating and and almost unbelievable what you found. So I know it's a big topic, but kind of summarize some of the basics of what you found that shocked you um, and have certainly shocked a lot of people who, who you've been talking to about it.
1: I think the first thing is that the science behind LCHF is actually sound. You know, it's biochemistry. It's the stuff that we learn in the first fifty, tex- 50 pages of textbooks. It's yeah. not in the fine print. So the science, I, I, I often describe that eating real food, <coughs> LCHF, um, is if you eat food that's fresh, local, seasonal. Then, by definition, it is low in carbohydrate. It's low in the. It doesn't have added sugars. Right. It doesn't have lots of carbohydrate in it. It doesn't. It has healthy fats in it and it has protein in it. So the definition of real food is LCHF, whereas the definition of the standard of a you know, standard diet for everyone is it comes out of a paper bag or a plastic bag, right. and it that's unhealthy. So. All I've been arguing and all discussing and yourself and others and in the scientific world is that we're just talking biochemistry and real food can't by definition be healthy, unhealthy. And Belinda made this observation, myself and Tim Noakes in particular, under investigation for recommending real food. She said, you guys are going blue in the face until what, there's got to be something else. So it wasn't until she started to investigate my case because I was clearly under investigation for a few years. She said she came across that the expert witness that somehow mysteriously appeared into my case was actually someone very high up in the nutrition world who was working for a cereal company at the time. So how come the breakfast cereal industry got involved in my case? Yeah. And it, it took another three years but it, you know, towards the end of 2018 we came across, uh, well, Belinda came across 600 pages of internal emails from the Australian breakfast cereal industry. And in it, it had that the concepts of paleo and low carb were affecting cereal sales, profits were down, and these seven people were to be targeted. Now I ended up being the only doctor, Australian doctor on that list that was meant for targeting. And they actually then had in the documents it had detailed as to which Media people they were going to be working with in the newspapers, the magazines, uh, across all forums to actually target those people who are promoting low carbon paleo. So, I mean, that's scary stuff. And that, that is this, scary. And this is actually not some low document. This was actually the briefing document to the CEOs of the heads of the cereal industry in Australia. So, yeah, Kellogg's, South- Nestle, Sanitarium, Freedom Foods, and the head of the Food and Grocery Council. Now, I'm happy to say that because I've actually presented. Those individual names to a Senate inquiry, calling them out. So, and so those, you know, everyone says, "Oh, that's Australia," but those five CEOs or four of those report directly to the CEOs here in the U.S. So it, it, it this is the cereal industry, the main, you know biggest corporates at the bottom of that food pyramid. You know, where they yeah. promote the cereals and grains, are actually in a working relationship with the Dietitians Association. They were being paid to actually promote the benefits of sugar and cereal. And the Dietitian's Association in Australia, just like here in the US, are the ones that effectively write the dietary guidelines. So here we've got the cereal industry directly paying the Dietitian's Association not only to be involved in targeting of those voices against it, you know, talking preventative health, but they're also the ones writing the dietary guidelines. So if you think that that started opening Pandora's box, now realize that took some years to work out Right. But along the way, Belinda's investigation um, has completely uncovered, and we're effectively unraveling what's happened with my education, <coughs> the, your education, uh, and the future of health education for the you know of for along nutrition lines. So, the long and the short of it is, we've gone back in history and if you look at the history of the dietary guidelines a they've changed over time they used to be having they used to be meat and dairy based and over the last 100 years the dietary guidelines in western society have become cereal based anti meat anti dairy and rapidly approaching vegetarian and vegan
0: and right, so the way people ate i mean sort of before there were guidelines the way people ate was very heavy based in meat and low in in grains.
1: Even the early twentieth century ones, yeah, was meat and dairy based, right? But as it's evolved in, in nineteen seventy two, saw the uh, the McGovern report, and in nineteen ninety two was actually the, the full on food pyramid. Uh, and now we're sort of seeing the My Plate here in the US, but effectively it's again I'll come back cereal based, anti meat, anti dairy, a- approaching vegan vegetarian. Right. And when you look at the history of that, that's where we've spent a lot of time. So. From the dietetics, that that nutrition aspect, the dietary guidelines were started effectively by the Dietitians Association uh, of America, mm. or the American Dietetics Association, in 1917. The founder of that association was a woman by the name of Lena Cooper. Lena Cooper uh, was a protege of John Harvey Kellogg. So she was working for John Harvey Kellogg. She effectively started the American Dietetics Association. She then wrote the textbooks for the next 30 years for dietetics which formed the basis of dietetics and nutrition yeah. for the world for the, the model a first of all the model of the dietetics association as well as the textbooks became that for not only the US but for Canada the united kingdom australia south africa new zealand so the the, the western Organisations all followed suit, and effectively, the cereal industry was right there at the beginning.
0: Yeah, we'd like to think that this was altruistic and just trying to benefit society and tell them the best way to be healthy. But once you have industry involved, you can't assume it's altruistic anymore. And why should an industry be involved? There's no reason industry should, with with um, with a bias and with a vested interest, should be involved in telling people what to eat. But somehow the two got combined very early and have never really separated.
1: Well, they haven't separated at all. Yeah, And of greater concern is that the the basis of cereal isn't uh, uh, grounded in science, it's actually grounded in ideology.
0: Right, so that's the other risky part. Not only is it industry but now we're bringing in religion and ideology, another thing that has no place in telling us how to be healthy really.
1: Well, John Harvey Kellogg, and Lena Cooper were both vegetarians, both members of the Adventist church, and the Seventh-day Adventist church have been right there at the beginning, heavily promoting their concept, and they are promoting the Garden of Eden diet which is vegan, cereal-based, anti-meat, anti-dairy, vegan. Now that's it and effectively they have been there influencing the dietary guidelines for 100 years. So uh, the people involved in writing the vegetarian uh, mandate for the American Association and for the uh, the Australian dietetics uh, guidelines were effectively all uh, vegan vegetarian. Uh, In the American one, uh, eight out of the nine were actually uh, Seventh-day Adventists. Eight out of nine? Eight out of nine were vegetarian, vegan. Five of the nine were Adventists. And the other person who was neither uh, vegan nor vegetarian nor Adventist, uh, was working for uh, the processed food industry. Wow! So we, here we've got major influence at the highest levels which has actually come from religious ideology. And the ideology, look, they're, they're well-intentioned I've got no problem. I mean, this is not anti-religion, it's just if you've got a belief, then I'm very happy for you to have that belief. However, make it grounded. But if you want to start promoting that and influencing that for the all population, Make certain it's grounded on science and not an ideology for salvation.
0: But that's what's so interesting is that the narrative has changed, right? Because they can't say it's because of religion and because it's for salvation. So, because a lot of people aren't going to be open to that message. So the message has sort of changed. Now it's the, inv- or it was health, then it was environment, and then it's ethics. So the narrative keeps changing, but I guess one of the points that you're saying is it still all comes from that ideological backbone. Is that right?
1: The, the, we, they are not so much pro serial as that they are anti-meat. Anti-meat. That, right. That's the basis of, of uh, Ellen G. White's uh, prophecies and her, her, her belief is that meat is, co- is you know, one of the. Uh, if you consume meat, then that is as close to demonizing yourself as you can possibly do, and that you will not get salvation if you do that. And that's a that's a background. It's a back. Well, I shouldn't use the word backbone of, of of their belief system. So the terms meat causes violence, meat causes masturbation, meat causes cancer. Those terms are coming around in the early, you know, the late 19th century, the 1860s, 1870s. The meat causes um, uh, heart disease. Uh, came up in the nineteen hundreds you know essentially we we worked out that meat doesn 't cause masturbation and meat uh, uh, doesn't really cause violence so those messages are late nineteenth century ones so then we got the next message is you know meat causes cancer, which has continued to come along and with you know if you look at the data that 's very poor association data for a couple of rare you know a couple of cancers with low um, relative risk ratios, right. but nonetheless get... Over marketed. And so that narrative of fat causes heart disease is actually part of the meat causes heart disease. It's whatever they can use to try and travel that path. So we've now moved on to back to meat causes cancer, and now the latest cause is meat causes environmental harm.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. It's all complete and utter nonsense. But you've got to realise it's got to, the backing of this is coming from a religious ideology for salvation, not. Health.
0: Yeah, but since we don't hear much, I mean, aside from when you and Belinda started talking about it, nobody was bringing this up about religious salvation. So people, I think a lot of people probably say, ah, that's not true anymore. I mean, now it's more just maybe industry and people promoting the environment. But but it sounds like you would argue no, that the, the well, no, ideological I'll, I'll, process is still there. Strongly. I'll,
1: I'll, I'll argue both. Yeah. Um, first of all, the Seventh day Adventist Church has been on this bandwagon for a long time. People go, oh, they're only a small group, but they are the second biggest educator in the world after the Catholic Church. They're massive. They, 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 they're, uh, they, they, the number of schools, they just off the top of my head, 1400 schools, You know, a couple of hundred uh, like hundred universities around the world. Oh. They, they've got an enormous amount of funding. Uh, just in you know, the US they've got 28 hospitals in Florida alone.
0: They run 28 hospitals, 28 hospitals in Florida alone.
1: Yes. Wow. That's and so they have this ongoing message coming through. Yeah. The other big issue is that um, they spend a lot of time in the developing world uh, on missionary work and promoting uh, their message, their health message. And they use that as the entering wedge of the church. So they're not coming along saying, We're going to give you salvation, we're going to give you health. Right. Come away around to our way of eating, which is their big promotional one there is a thing called the CHIP program and it's being introduced in uh, countries like Fiji is just adopting it as an entire country. I mean the Polynesians, the last thing they need is more cereals and grains with their obesity and diabetes Mm -hmm. epidemic. But it's also being introduced in the US via insurance companies. CHIP program is is being adopted and it's effectively a vegan program with a background of religious ideology to use as an entering wedge into the church. And so it's right there, front and central. And that the important thing is, they're not hiding any of this. If you actually you know, look at their stuff, and last year in 2018, they published a 20 page article in a journal called Religion, acknowledging everything I've just said.
0: Really?
1: And they're very proud of it. They are, they've got a health agenda for the world. The other, so that, you know, that's the religious ideology. They are promoting that because they need to get the message to every corner of the world, every tongue. I think is actual in, their, in every their, tongue, every tongue, and therefore, and then for Christ's return. Now, I'm okay for you to have your belief, but it shouldn't be forced upon the world's population both in our eating habits and therefore our agricultural practices. Right. The other thing that's involved that the SDA are involved in is that they effectively own the cereal industry of the world and the soy industry and the alternative meat industry. They were right there at the beginning, the first meat alternatives, the nut analogues were in fact invented by John Harvey Kellogg. Oh, were they really? Yeah. The soy was effectively brought from China uh, by a fellow, my, uh, Henry, uh, uh, Harry China Miller. So he was uh, an Adventist missionary, uh, and he he started a whole lot of uh, soy plants in conjunction with Adventist outposts in China. But effectively, he he brought soy back to the U.S. and the soy infant formula was promoted primarily by him. And now we see soy and infant formula, you know, every day on every every supermarket shelf. You've got to realize that they were there at the beginning, mm. and so they're still there, and they. So they've got not only got their own push at an ideological level; they've also got their own food industries.
0: And now they're getting uh, funding and venture capital in Silicon Valley involved in backing these fake meat products, and and that's that's sort of a little more dangerous because now once the money gets involved, it 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 can start to snowball. And I, I saw a Twitter post you made about can you identify which is the fake meat burger and which is dog food and they looked very similar, didn't they? Uh,
1: that, well, you couldn't pick them. Yeah, the, the Silicon Valley have come in on the tail end of it I suppose. I'm, it's probably not the tail end, it's you know, another, I'll keep using the term entering wedge. Um, the big, one of the big issues we see is that the medical education, so the current education model is being heavily pushed that we need to travel down the pathway of lifestyle medicine. Sounds great. Sounds great. Sounds great. You know, let's exercise more and, you know, eat well and get plenty of sleep and sunshine and have good communication skills. But the nutrition side of that is to move towards vegan. Yeah. And that is, in fact, most people don't realize, but lifestyle medicine is the Adventist church. So, in all of its different names, different, you know, and it started as the Christian Association of Lifestyle Medicine, and that's ultimately. Just moved through a series of name changes, but it's widespread right around the world. Uh, and that has a good message. However, it's about ed- medical education and pushing that pathway. Side by side with that is the term exercises medicine, which is actually trademarked. And one of the initial founding members of that trademark and exercises medicine is Coca Cola. So, in this strange relationship, we've got these two arms coming together in medical education. Look up Life Med, which is education. The whole concept of education now being controlled by lifestyle medicine, pushing a vegan, plant based agenda, and Coca Cola coming in. And they effectively dropped their, you know, they started becoming involved with lifestyle medicine in 2010 started coming into significant relationships 2012 and then the funding pedal was pressed 2014, Mm. 2015. So we're now seeing this whole rise of the vegan agenda and they don't realize that the propaganda has actually been fed by the lifestyle medicine Adventist church message, Garden of Eden diet, with the backbone of 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 the processed food industry, Led by Coca-Cola,
0: great marketing,
1: and they've come together. But the trouble is, here in the U.S., you've got now eight universities are adopting this lifestyle medicine, plant-based diet, as their medical education.
0: And they they don't understand, I'm sure, the religious part of it. The uh, they don't open their eyes to the industry part of it. They think this is a healthier way for individuals. Uh, I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and say they legitimately want to help patients get better and help people lead healthier lives. But we sort of have to pull back the curtain and show them what the science says and where this is coming from and they have to question why is Coca-Cola involved. I mean, these things, these things need to be more front
1: and center. The, the processed food industry is well-positioned to Continue the vegan agenda.
0: Well, they will profit greatly from yeah, it. Won't in they? fact,
1: that is their. Mar- I mean, and in fact, uh, we've come across some documents, again, from uh, the Adventist Church and their their food arm, saying that uh, they're expecting a 25% increase in their profit next mm. year because of the adoption of their vegan Garden of Eden diet uh, by millennials. And so, again, it's all about it being open in a discussion. I'm very happy for you to present to me. I'd like to present. Here's my educational package to teach to my medical students. But I come from a religious ideological background, promoting this for salvation, and I've got the backing of uh, of the processed food industry, which is going to help their profit line. Right. I mean, you wouldn't you wouldn't buy into that, would you? No. Yet we've got an entire generation out there who, are, you know, are taking up this agenda because it's on based on. You know, animal welfare, animal rights, and questionable um, environmental statistics. And Peter Ballastat's work is is just phenomenal. And I've said to Peter, I I say to my when I'm talking about this, I don't trust Peter either. I think he's got a whole counter argument, Uh, and there is there's another side to the coin when you look at the, the whole environmental impact. Yeah. Let's look at both sides of it rather than just taking for granted what you hear on cowspiracy or forks over knives, because that's clearly an agenda-driven one. Yeah. And you've got to realise that again, that agenda is coming from the Garden of Eden diet Adventists, right. and the food industry, Coca-Cola, Ilse. It's. It, and it's. Uh, we're not conspiratorial. Now we, we we looked at this for a couple of years before we stort, sort thought. Council from other people saying, oh, Have we lost the plot on this? And all we're doing is having it ratified. And then last year, as I said, the Seventh day Adventist Church came out very proudly saying, Yeah, we're behind this because they have an agenda, they believe in it. Yeah.
0: And it sort of leads me to think about the Eat Lancet campaign, right? Because that, it seems like that was the attempt to now say this is science based and evidence based. And, and that's what Eat Lancet was supposed to be, an evidence-based report to tell us all why we should adopt a vegan lifestyle. But when you dissect it, you can see the evidence isn't there, Their recommendations are not based on, on high-level quality of evidence. So, if anything, I would hope that would hurt their mission more once people realize that it was basically a, a well-funded media campaign that wasn't based in in science but yet... I don't think that message is getting out there, but the, the, the message that's being propagated more is, look, look at this evidence-based approach now to being vegan. Um, and that seems pretty problematic when you start to distort what the evidence says.
1: Oh, look, um, <laughs> scientific evidence is uh, thrown out the window I think nowadays. Yeah. Uh, it's it completely and utterly biased. Eat Lancet had significant funding behind it from the food industry and the pharmaceutical industry, massive funding.
0: Yeah, why would pharmaceutical industry be involved there? That, that, again, that makes no sense except they're going to profit from it, but they should have no seat at the table there.
1: None whatsoever. And it's disappointing to see that Lancet actually published it in the first place because it didn't require a lot of review of the articles to realize they were, poorly, they, they, they were just poor articles. Yeah. They're very biased. I think it's almost you know, worth taking another step backwards. The Adventist Health Studies, which are quoted over and over of the benefits of vegan vegetarian, uh, were flawed. And so when you actually look into them, and they quoted over and over and over, but they're actually the Adventist studies or done by studies done by people affiliated with the Adventist church that re-quote their own articles. So those three Adventist studies last time I looked at them had been re-quoted each time by themselves over 400 times. That meant there were over 1,200 recitations Recitations by themselves. By themselves. So, you know, let's say I write an article and then I'll cite myself on that article. Right. And then I cite myself on that article twice. All of a sudden, they've compounded. But if you keep telling everyone that your Adventist health studies are fabulous, but the first two Adventist health studies, the definition of vegetarian was that as long as you didn't have meat more than once a week. Yeah. And the definition of vegan was that as long as you didn't have meat more than once a month.
0: So, when people say they were perfectly healthy on a vegan diet or a vegetarian diet, yeah. you don't realize that still involves some meat by those definitions. Mm.
1: And when you actually dissect those studies and have a good look at them, there are other studies showing that other populations, not just Adventists, actually outlive them. Yeah. So, and, and they, you know, right through to quoting the, uh, the blue zones in Okinawa, I'm, I've actually gotten back to those Okinawan articles and they're actually eating pork.
0: They're eating pork. And yeah, Sardinia is, has the Sardinia pig and the, yeah. the, they're goat
1: farmers.
0: And I mean, there's a, there's a lot there that didn't come up in the blue zones. There's so. a lot
1: of meat that's actually out there. Yeah. And I'm, I'm all for having community and spirituality and togetherness and sunlight and exercise and rest. Right. And living by the seasons and sleeping by the by the by the sun, but don't tell me it's because you've got a plant based diet when the other variables are just so important, and particularly when that plant based diet's being supplemented with meat right yeah
0: does it seem like just too daunting though, too overwhelming that there's too much behind this mission now, too much behind the push that it's like we're fighting a losing battle, or do you think there's something we can do to show people to open their eyes to where this is coming from and help them see the other side of the equation?
1: Well, that's why we're having a chat today, right because if we both thought it was hopeless we would have stopped um I have children we've got a grandson you know we ha- we this is uh my future's already determined but but his is his isn't, and uh some of the people listening or watching might have seen that Pixar movie Wall-E, mm-hmm. and I think it's brilliant. I often refer people, so go and watch Wall-E. Yeah, very, very, completely on the mark. In that, we're as a society right now we're fat, we're overhanging our chairs, we're, we're, we're lethargic, we're we're sick, we're medicated to the hilt. And I don't sound harsh, and I honestly think this this is completely and utterly unsustainable. And we're about to come over a precipice you know it's not going to be a social decline it's going to be a social cliff we're going to go over it's going to be really ugly in the next 10 years um but in that movie the green leaf well that's my grandson you know he i you know i'm hoping that he's going to be armed with health he'll understand you need to eat real food to so
0: explain that for people who haven't seen the movie what do you mean by well the the, green
1: the, leaf? in the, in the in the movie no, go and watch it everyone. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but in the movie effectively uh, mankind has been wiped off the planet. We've destroyed our own planet underneath us and there's a, a group of survivors which are still floating around in a spaceship waiting for, trying to find a spot to actually live. But they actually realize if you actually go back to earth and you do it right, then there's a future again on earth. And so therefore I, I you know, every economic marker, every health marker I, I look at, is that we're going to have a massive change in population health and it's scary. However, I mean I'm not depressed, I've, got a, I've suffered from this thing called hyperpragmatism. You know, I've, hyperpragmatism. <laughs> so I'm just being pragmatic about it. This is yeah. happening before us. You can see it when you walk down the street, you see it in your family community, you see it in the hospitals, we need to do something about it. And, but it's going to be messy, but let's prepare the next generation for making the difference.
0: Right.
1: And that's that's what you know, that's the education I want to see. And my problem, or Belinda and my our problem at the moment, is we see that the education model that's being introduced in the US, being pushed in Australia, you know, going back some years, I think it was being pushed into my own university. And as it turns out, my medical students were going to be put having this new curriculum thrust upon them. And I, that's when I came out and started talking to them about actually that's all nonsense. You know, this, I'm talking about real food, LCHF, blah, blah, blah. I didn't realize I I'd actually trodden on a hornet's nest in my own hospital to my own students but they were the group that were having this new experimental teaching upon them. Right. That's all going by the wayside but I think that's part of why I got into trouble because I actually...
0: You weren't just affecting patients, you were influencing the next generation of physicians and industry is going to see that as a big problem that they need to squash.
1: But, but where we are now is, this, so we, you know, have we squashed Eat Lancet, has it been questioned? Yes, but that's only their first phase, That's you know, yeah. it's not even the first phase, it's going to keep coming. It's up to everyone to start calling out, saying let's call out the science, let's see who's behind it, who's pushing it, right. because we've seen the results of the last major dietary change intervention of public health policy and that was the introduction of the low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. We've had that social experiment for the, next, the last 40 years, 50 years. The next thing which is being pushed literally down our throats is the plant-based vegan diet, anti-meat, pro-cereal,
0: right.
1: as Belinda says, with a side of Coke.
0: <laughs> Brought to you by Coke with a smile. Yeah,
1: and, you know, and, and, if it's, and, and it's not our fault that if you're fat and sick, it's because it's your lifestyle and you haven't yeah. exercised enough. You know we've got that whole concept ingrained in our psyche. You're fat, therefore you're lazy. Well, it's not. It's actually what we've been eating, but we've convinced everyone that it's because they're lazy.
0: Yes, yeah, so we we need to get rid of that in, uh, industry influence and get rid of the religion influence and get rid of the pharmaceutical industry influence when it comes to educating people, uh, educating our future doctors, educating mm. the public. But how do we do that? I mean that's a much harder question. How do we do that because it's a free market society and they've got their fingers so deep in people's pockets that they don't know how to get out of it.
1: And if you stand up against them, you get into trouble yeah. you know, because I refuse to follow the guidelines. My patients in hospital with diabetes out of control. We've being given three serves of ice cream per day. And I said this is ridiculous and then I was told they are the guidelines. That's sort of the beginning of my journey against the system. I said, well, right. the guidelines are wrong then. And they said, no, they're the guidelines. We can't change them, we have to do as we're told. And I said, okay, I'm going to try and change the guidelines. So what do we do? Well, we stand up, you start questioning. Yeah. You know, one of the problems in medicine is we're educated on this read-repeat-reward concept. It does not suit us as trainees and as doctors to read something and then question it. Because right. then you get into trouble, and then you're reported to the medical board because you're you know you're saying I can't I can't recommend ice cream to my patients with because, and that's literally what happened. I got reported because I said this is ridiculous. Stop serving my patients ice cream.
0: And that, that's such an important point. Just the the read, repeat, reward. Because how are other industries educated? How are engineers taught? They're taught to question everything, to analyze things from different sides. To, to try and find why one solution is wrong. you know? and, and in medicine we're not taught that, are we? We're not taught to be critical thinkers like that.
1: But uh, we, we used to be until
0: 1910.
1: Yeah, what um, happened in 1910? 1910 was the introduction of the Flexner Report. So, before 1910 we had a much more holistic approach to medicine. And um, in 1910, uh, Rockefeller of Oil and Carnegie of uh, of Steel commissioned uh, Abraham Flexner to do the Flexner Report which was to actually look at medical education. Yeah, And it became a two-way fight at almost at that time between uh, William Osler, who is one of the fathers of medicine, um, who believed that we should be not medicating our patients, we should be bedside teachers and bedside carers. And he was very much against the Experimental and drug model. Again, and but Flexner came in with this agenda to actually change medical education. It's a fascinating story, and ultimately, uh, the Flexner report won through. Big money won out, mm. and the model of edu- medical education became one of that: let's laboratory test and medicate we stopped the bedside caring we stopped the holistic interactions i oh, didn't stop them completely but
0: certainly minimized
1: them we minimized it and out of that model because then rockefeller came along and supported those institutions that actually adopted the model 50 medical schools around uh, the us and canada were closed in the subsequent years and those ones that remained had effectively adopted that model and that was to medicate and to test and along with that, which was a, a burgeoning time for the pharmaceutical industry, the development of multiple drugs was the birth of the modern pharmaceutical industry. And so therefore all around 1910 to 1917 we had the birth of the pharmaceutical industry, we had the birth of nutrition science which is not science at all, it's about palatability, marketability, shelf life, profit. But we had the two that came together and so I call that generational education. So for, since 1910, 1917, we've had the pharmaceutical industry educating us on what, how to treat our patients. We've had the food industry telling us or educating us, I'll use a softer term, on what to eat. And we've lost the ability to think because they then develop the guidelines. The guidelines say stick within these parameters, but the guidelines at the best only are useful for the median group let's say one standard deviation, two-thirds of the population, that leaves a third of the population out to the side which the guidelines don't fit. Hmm. But you as a medico have to prescribe according to the guidelines for the median group, that means potentially we're doing harm to at least a third of the population.
0: Well, and you could even reverse that and say if the guidelines were designed for healthy people and then now our society is two-thirds unhealthy. Hmm. So you can sort of flip that on your head in terms of, Who that represents, but I think that's such an important take-home lesson. Whether whether people can take home from this discussion that you know we should not be vegan and we should eat meat, or um, you know whether it's healthy or environmentally sound, the most important lesson is question what you're told, question the norm, Mm -hmm. question the guidelines, because because the people who who've put those out haven't questioned the influences. We need to do that. And whether you agree or not, you, you have to at least ask the questions. And if you then ask the questions and still agree with them, that's fine, you've done your own due diligence, but we can't just accept things on face value. Um, we can 't do that anymore because the, the role of industry the role of money the role of religion is too deeply rooted that 's what you have and Belinda have taught me that the, those roots go so deep that we we just have to start asking the questions and never stop asking the questions I think that 's the most important lesson
1: well the gener- generational education is you don't you don 't question your teachers nor did they, if they, and if they didn 't te- question their teachers before them that's that 's where we 're at now we 've just been scared and afraid to question our teachers, and you know you're absolutely right. Question. So if, you're, if your doctor asks you and know, says, "I'd like I want you to take this medication," don't be afraid to say why. Right. And I particularly I, and when you adopt an LCHF, low carb, healthy fat lifestyle, the very first question I get from doctors all the time is, "I'm worried about the patient's cholesterol." You know, and the patients get that; they're intimidated by that. And I have one really, really simple reply for the health professionals, the doctors in question, I say, what is cholesterol? And the scary thing is 99% of doctors cannot answer the question. <laughs> you know, I just say, what's cholesterol? And unless your doctor can come up with at least five things which, which cholesterol is there yeah. for, then don't take his advice or her advice. I mean, or just question it because unless we're questioning the doctors, then the doctors aren't going to go away and learn because they're just following the guidelines, right. and I dared to question and when you start looking at nutrition science or what I call non science or nonsense, it's a house of cards, yeah, and that's all my journey's been in the last ten years. I press the pack of cards and it just keeps falling down. doesn't matter if it's cholesterol, if it's sugar or if it's carbohydrate if it's fat or healthy fats and Polyunsaturated oils, or unfortunately, everything I've pressed is falling down, and so my textbooks, I've come to question. You know, Harrison's, you know, I presume you, Harrison's right. principles of, of medicine, you know, the. Go- I can remember my father giving it to me on my eighteenth birthday. Actually, it was eighteen plus one day because he said I couldn't give it to my birth on my birthday because I was completely drunk, <laughs> and he gave it to me. He gave it to me the following morning. I can still remember out in the back porch. He said, "Here's the book. Your birthday cards under the definition of alcohol, you know, next to alcohol." I can still remember it. Was very funny. <laughs> that's hilarious. But I mean, that was that was that's our go-to book. And the 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 editors of Harrison's last year were paid over eleven million dollars U.S. undeclared by the pharmaceutical industry. Oh, that's so depressing to hear. So, well, okay. I don't mind you being paid. But put it across the, you know, the front cover of Harrison's. This yeah. has been influenced by the pharmaceutical industry to the tune of 11 million dollars. Just put it across there. I, I don't, I, and then I, then I know, I know what hat you're wearing. Right,
0: right. Ah, well, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's so depressing to hear that that the influence runs so deep. But on the other hand, it's great to have voices like yours and Belinda's opening our eyes to that influence and giving us the permission to question because that's what we need. So I, I want to thank you for all the information you're putting out there. And although I'm sorry for the struggles you had to go through, I'm, I'm glad it was you because you were the right person to come through that and, and become the spokesman to teach us to open our eyes and ask these questions. So uh, it's, it's remarkable what you're doing to try and, to try and help educate people in the right way. And help them educate themselves. So, if people want to hear more about you and read more about what you've written and what you've done, where can we direct them to go? Look, I
1: think the the best site at this point in time is one that Belinda set up called ISupportGary.com. I know it sounds corny, but that's why she set it up. She said it there because I was under investigation and being hammered by the system. Yeah. Uh, and therefore, her research and a lot of this stuff is on ISupportGary.com. I'm on Twitter. Belinda's on Twitter. We're still on Facebook. Um, uh, that's as Belinda fed no fructose. That was changed from Gary fed no fructose in the midst of all the medical uh, um, uh, medical board investigations, and that was they they said, look, you can't talk about this. So we literally just drew a line through Gary and wrote Belinda. Yeah. And because they can't silence her, and I've now been cleared you know, to, to start talking about this stuff again. Uh, I don't think anybody wants me talking about it. Apart from the patients in the community,
0: only the people who want to
1: get better. That's right.
0: Yeah. Oh.
1: We're still out there. Great.
0: Well, thank you very much, Gary. I really appreciate you taking the time.
1: No, thank you, Brett.